Hello, and welcome to the Anarchy SF podcast, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I'm Yanai, and with me, as always, is Eden. Eden, how are you? Hello. Oh, you know, another day in the collapse. Yeah. You said you're okay when you answered my call and then I bummed you out a little bit before we start, you know, get you in the right mood. Oh, no, no, buddy. I spent my afternoon reading an article about capital collapse, which is like the proposed next step of capitalist realism. So I was good and depressed. I just like to say all good because it's a nice start to the conversation. (laughs) I get that. So we're going to talk about a game or a role-playing game, which is a game, but it's also kind of like a story-building machine. And it's about a form of, I don't know if capital collapse, I don't know if it fits like the model you're talking about, but it's definitely about a way in which capital can or like the structures that currently hold up the way capital exists right now, a way that they can collapse. And the game is Shadowrun. Yeah. So Shadowrun is one of the most veteran and popular role-playing games. It was first published in 89, which is... Yes, it's exactly as old as me. Oh, yeah. Did not consider that. That was kind of like the golden age of the start of role-playing games. And for those of you who are... Unwell, it's a cyberpunk game set, well, interestingly enough, it was originally set in 2050, but in the latest edition, it has actually been delayed (laughs) to 2082, (laughs) so it's not the slow cancellation of the future, but the slow delay of the future. Yeah, just, we've recently played, like you and I, another role-playing game called Lancer, and it's like 40,000 years in the future. Yeah. And I recently watched Ava, which is an anime that has like these big mechs and Lancer is also about mechs but like in Ava they're like well we'll have mechs about around 2015 I think it was written in the 80s mm-hmm. and in Lancer it's like well in 40,000 years there have to already have been mechs right like 40,000 that's enough time for mechs yeah it's enough time for us to get our shit together <laughs> so Shadowrun the basic premise of the game is that following a series of plagues and political upheavals a few things have happened. One, the main political player is no longer nation states, but rather corporations or mega corporations. Two, magic has come back. So magic now works. And three, that revival of magic has also modified humanity and caused fantasy races to exist or research, depends on which version of the lore you read. So stuff like Elves and trolls and orcs and dragons and a bunch of other even weirder stuff have started to pop up around the world. And in this hyper-capitalist and very violent and unsettled setting, there is something called the shadows. The shadows are the edges around or within society, and they're used as the main arena of political action. So stuff like corporate espionage, assassinations, hacking, and stuff like that all happen in the shadows. And those that are the operatives for these missions are called shadow runners, hence the game's name. And a shadow run is also one of those operations, right? So when you go and do an operation, you go running. That's kind of the backdrop. I feel like one of the things this game gets right like the shadows are the places that aren't under surveillance and yeah the game i think like really nailed how like the places that aren't being surveilled would look like like how surveillance would be almost ubiquitous but like you'll have these kind of shadows like people who have somehow escaped having an id that's being tracked and it feels like very true to 2020 where like you know everything is recording you all the time and you're always logged into something and it's very convenient, but it also means that you're constantly being tracked, which I haven't tried my hand at any criminal activity, but I assume it problematizes yeah. it. I mean, I want to go one step deeper and actually use that to bring up my first point. So this is like a postmodernist, but also a Marxist conception and even Jungian in a way. Every organization has a code and it exercises power through that code, right? Like how to dress and how to talk and how to stand and how to work and all that stuff. But it also exercises power through the shadow of that code, right? Mm -hmm. The dark counterpart to the code. So there are actually codifications for 
how to break the rules. So if you think about a corporate environment, and we've actually talked about this in my personal life, like five years ago, I was facing this corporate thing that really nailed this point home, right? There's a way to tell people to go fuck themselves or to break a law within a corporate environment. So you have to bring to bear, for example, money. If you can make the case that you playing outside of the rules will result in more money for the company, you will be granted not a pass, but the corporation will look in a different direction. And the second one is social capital. So if you can call in enough favors, you can get the organization to look the other way and so on and so forth. So the rebellion, the illegal activity is not always in contrast to the legal level of operations. Now, what you said about 2020, I think is a great point, but I want to go one step further and say, look at Trump's use of unmarked agents in Portland, right? You don't get to be anonymous, right? You cannot hide your identity. You cannot operate in the shadows. The people who can do it are actually from the same group that makes the rules and tells you that you cannot be anonymous. They can be anonymous. They can use the shadows, the place where surveillance stops, to do things that they would otherwise be unable to do. And that is the lesson of Shadowrun, right? Because the classic Shadowrun-like chapter, which if you're not playing role-playing games, that stands for a longer piece of a story that's not one session, it's a few sessions of playing. The corporations use those Shadowrunners that don't exist, that are off the grid, that are oftentimes criminals, to do the things that they are not allowed to do within the legal framework, right? Like corporate espionage and sabotage and assassination, all that stuff. The game really explores this idea that the good guys, quote-unquote, the law and order guys, need the shadows to keep things operational, need the spaces where things break down in order to operate successfully. Yeah, and I feel like on the flip side, it's kind of critical of the idea that simply being kind of outside the system somehow mm-hmm. makes you a problem for the system. So yep. what happens is shadow runners kind of like get the upper hand in a way, but they don't like undermine the system. It's not a game about rebellion. It's more like a game of finding your own place. Yeah. And I also think one of the classic shadow run chapters that I started to bring up is you find out who your boss actually is. Right? Like you get a few missions, it's simple missions. If you look at the video games that were made, like Dragonfall, that's basically the premise, right? Like this simple mission turns into this big corporate conspiracy. So the classic trope is you thought you were playing the game, but the game was playing you. Yeah. Like you thought you're a rebel, you're on the outside, you don't play by the rules, but actually... It's not just that the rules apply to you. You are a critical component of the machine that makes the rules work. Like without you breaking the law, the law wouldn't be able to exist because all those organizations that enforce it rely on you to stay in power. And if people like you didn't exist, they would collapse and law would collapse with it. So the last thing I want to say on this topic, like I said, it's my first topic. And the idea here is to tie it back to something that I brought up in the very first episode of the cast, which is infrastructure space, and then see what Shadowrun does with it. And it does what I just said, like spoiler. So infrastructure space is this idea that you have entire spaces and forms and ideologies that are meant to be infrastructure for capitalism. So for example, the docks, right? The docks are an infrastructure space that operates differently from the rest of the state. They usually have special laws about taxation, about law enforcement, about contraband, what is allowed and not allowed inside of a dock. And all of those laws are meant to enable all sorts of organizations, like the state, but also like corporations, to take advantage of the docks, to you know move capital, move resources in a way that is freer than usual space. A shallow run is very interested in these infrastructure spaces. Shadows are basically where infrastructure stops, right? Where infrastructure cannot go, like you said, where surveillance breaks down. But going back to what I just said about the necessity of the shadows for the legal organization's existence, they're kind of a different sort of infrastructure, right? Like a dark 
infrastructure. Yeah, they're defined by contrasts. Yeah, they're defined by contrasts, but they also underpin the light infrastructure, the bright infrastructure. Behind every police station, there's untapped and unknowable and unreachable spaces where police officers can execute criminals without a trial. Now, guess whether that sentence applies to Shadowrun or our reality. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is a both, of course. So I'll connect this to the first point I want to talk about. I feel like what Shadowrun does really well is let you kind of play out the inherent contradictions of capitalism because mm-hmm. what it does is basically it says, well, I feel like it's a response to a kind of frustration within leftist circles. You know, it's the basic frustration with Marxism, right? Why didn't the revolution come already? And one of the responses is capitalism is really good at recuperating the forces that rise up to meet it. And it's really good at like resolving inherent contradictions while recreating more of them in this like ever spinning, you know, spinning into the abyss maybe, but ever spinning dance of absorbing stuff. So you have like the hippie movement and you have the punk movement and then they get commercialized and you can buy them as products. And what happens is you know, capitalism doesn't look at the hippies and like, you know, it beats up some of them, but to most of them it says like, okay, you had your fun, now you're 35, how about like a job? Mm-hmm. You know, and all of this was written by Marcuse in The One Dimensional Man, and Marcuse writes this and then he says, but I'm the same, right? I have my job in Stanford and I'm good, right? Like capitalism gave me a position to be all like anti-capitalist in. Like that's my place in the universe. So so let's just say that Herbert Marcuse, right, was a philosopher of the 20th century. He was part of the Frankfurt School. Yeah. He's from Berlin. And he wrote a lot of really good books about philosophy. But he also worked for the CIA. And he helped the CIA gather information and intelligence and cultural intelligence on the Soviet Union. And he was very critical of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. That's just perfect. (laughs) And because of those, yeah, and because of those ideas and because of his alternatives to Sovietism, he is considered the father of what's called the New Left. Now, if we had been living... 20 years in the past, you'd all known what the new left was because it was the thing to argue with. But I think at least that the new left completely failed because just like the hippie movement and just like those rebellion movements, it got recuperated, which is a really good word, by capitalism. Yeah, obviously not my world. It's also a Frankfurt School world. Yeah. So that's like the tension. That's the frustration, right? We have this you know, philosopher who writes about the problems of capitalism, but then capitalism like easily buys him off. And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as him, like, actually working for the CIA. It can also be like, you know, you have all these thoughts, all these, like, anti-capitalist thoughts, and then what will you do? You'll write a book, you'll try to sell it, you'll try to make a career out of it, because what else can you do? I'm not blaming anyone who does that. That's how you live under capitalism. So that's the frustration. And then what Shadow One does is it says, what would happen if we took all of the tensions of capitalism and cranked all of them up to 11? what's called accelerationists. Yeah, it's a form of accelerationism. And the idea is, if people right now have a comfortable enough position living, you know, within the inherent contradictions of capitalism, what if we crank them all up to 11? So we have racism, let's have fantasy racism, right? Let's have orcs and trolls and be racist about them as well and have it all like right in our faces. You know, we have corporations having too much power, let's give them more power and you know have them completely dominate there's some surveillance let's have more surveillance and then what it says is we'll put you in a position to interact with all of these systems kind of as an outsider but like exactly the kind of outsider that we've also spoken about in the cast the kind of outsider that by being an outsider has their own perspective on the system and i think Mm -hmm. playing shadow one kind of exposes you to these contradictions. Now, you mentioned accelerationism. So accelerationism is usually mentioned nowadays in the context of actually wanting acceleration to happen. So wanting everything that's terrible about capitalism to become more terrible. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the Nick Land version of accelerationism. And it's interesting because I feel like this game comes at a point where that's, you know, philosophy is at its head. 
But I feel like it's very different to think about a game doing accelerationism and a philosopher like Nick Land, but also like Zizek when asked about like Hillary Clinton or Trump, never mind like what you think about the difference between those two. What he said was something like, let's bring Trump and everybody will understand like the problems with capitalism. And when you do it in a game, I feel like it's very fruitful because you get to interact with all these systems. It's a really good thought experiment. It's a really good, you know, space to inhabit and kind of play around with these ideas and kind of learn why these things frustrate you in actual reality. And then, like you say, you go back to actual reality and it's like, hey, who are the shadow runners now? It's the people abducting people from protests in, in Portland. But I feel like if you want this in reality, you just want people to be abducted in Portland. Like some people, you know, say if we have uh, someone terrible like Trump, maybe someone terrible like Mike Pence, like there's no end to this. Like people will finally realize the problem with capitalism. And I feel like that's kind of underestimating capitalism. But I think it's more than that. And I think that Shadowrun kind of tries at least to get the message across by saying, look, your assumption is that people being terrible or people like Trump and Pence being terrible will kind of like universally strike up this new consciousness that says, oh, capitalism is bad, actually. But what you don't understand is that what capitalism does is parcelize and cut up different classes, and in Shadowrun's case, and in reality's case, races, geographical locations, and ways of thought, so that no one has the complete picture. If someone were able to view everything that capitalism does, they would, the assumption is that they would inherently understand why it's evil, right? Every one of us would have the empathy to say, this is a bad idea. But when you look at specific instances of it, and you can't see the whole picture, you can say things like, capitalism is bad, but it gave us smartphones, and it gave us, like, lower sickness rates among infants, and it gave us all this amazing travel technology and stuff like that, because you don't zoom out. And a really good example of that is COVID-19, right? Capitalists are now in full force in newspapers, quote-unquote, I use that term very loosely here, like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, basically propaganda rags, right? To say that the plague is extragenous to the economy. It's an external force. It's not part of capitalism. It's this thing that no one could have seen coming, that we had nothing to do about, and that economists aren't the ones in charge of whether it would happen or not, or how we dealt with it. Which is, of course, wrong. COVID-19 is inherently intrinsic to capitalism and its forms and conditions that it forces on the planet. But because we can't zoom out and see the full picture. We can't see villages in China and all across the world being pushed deeper and deeper into forests. We can't see how deforestation makes animals from those forests interact with humans more. We can't see how the mass commercialization of meat creates bigger throughputs that create more dangerous viruses. We can't think on those scales. We only focus on what's happening to us and it doesn't look like a problem of capitalism. All to say that Shadowrun really highlights the mosaicism, which is also a term I've used on the cast before, this mosaic of experiences and suffering and resistances across this future. So let's take the United States as an example. The United States undergoes balkanization in Shadowrun's setting. The West Coast becomes an indigenous people state, because their magic now works and they use it to declare independency, except for Seattle, which becomes an enclave and is the main setting for Shadowrun, by the way. Yeah. The South is conquered by what becomes of Mexico, which is actually a corporal state. One of the Mexican corporations becomes a mega corporation and conquers, you know, New Mexico and all those parts of Southern California and all those parts of the United States. The East joins with Canada to start the Canadian and American free nations, and the South rises again, as in every racist dream, and becomes the Confederated States of America. And that's not the only place where that happens. Like, Berlin becomes a free city, right? Like, its own state, and other places on the planet. And then the game says, now let's look at these locales, let's look at these locations, and see how the locals can't figure out who the big bad is. What is the evil that is causing all suffering. For Shadowrun, the answer is those megacorps, right? But the characters can never 
it says it in the book. You cannot take a mega corporation down. That's not what this game is about. Yeah. Your characters don't have the scale and the resources and the understanding to even start fighting mega corporations. So it really sends that message home of when you look at the small picture, when you look at the locality, when you look at what's in front of you, you will never be able to deal with the actual evils that are out there, right? With the actual global forces that are working on you. And this mosaic of experiences is what enables capitalism to survive. Yeah, it's really interesting because in the history of Shadowrun, there's like this event. I think the first event is the emergence of a dragon out of somewhere. And it's kind of a cataclysmic event that starts all of these changes that you describe. And I feel like Shadowrun is really good at giving you the feeling we are sitting on a barrel of explosives, you know, already lit with the fuse getting smaller. You see all of these things happening and you're like, whoa, the world of Shadowrun is really insane. But if you focus on any one of them, you're like, wait, these are all tensions that exist in a world. Like the tension between indigenous yeah. people, uh, you know, what we see with uh, what's weapon in, in Canada, what we see in North Dakota. Yeah. yeah. You know, Berlin versus like rest of Germany, like these tensions actually exist to be played out so Shadowrun just says if we just take this process and we take away what would actually happen which is that capitalism kind of obfuscates stuff and complicates stuff and you know complicates the news everything becomes a pastiche of meaninglessness like Shadowrun says let's focus stuff let's say that every one of these tensions will like play out and let's wherever you focus your gaze you will see one of these tensions actually play out and then you see that like, we do live in a kind of mosaic of these different cases of tension or violence. Yeah, this is like, you know, there's a joke about how to know that you're, you know, like a drug PSA, an anti-drug PSA, but it's anti-postmodernism. So like how to know that your kid is doing postmodernism. And one of the signs is that he starts to use the plural with nouns that don't really have a plural. So like instead of saying knowledge, he says knowledges. Yeah. Right? That's a really common postmodernist thing. It's, there's no knowledge, there's knowledges. So I think what we're trying to say about Shadowrun, this idea of mosaicism, is that it breaks down oppression into oppressions. Oh, right? cool. Like, yeah. Yeah, like different types of oppression. Here is the oppression of the corporation for its clients and like client citizens. Here is the oppression of the dominant race towards the non-dominant races. Here's the oppression of the supposedly Democrats, supposedly free states against anarchists and leftists and people who are trying to rebel. But I think what it's saying is you cannot see, you cannot touch oppression with a capital O, right? Oppression with a capital O always eludes you. Yeah. So you mentioned postmodernism. So if I may, I'll go to my second point, which is I think it's interesting to look at Shadowrun as a postmodern work so i've mentioned foucault a lot in the past like there's a problem with postmodern writers that if you really want to understand a postmodern writer you have to devote like about a year to studying them because most of them you can only get like i mean obviously you can understand like the basics of what they're talking about but if you want to like really dig deep and understand like the underlying stuff you really have to read several books by the same person so i'm sorry if i like narrow in the, the postmodern discussions mainly to foucault but there's an inherent tension between postmodernism and leftism sometimes because postmodernism talks a lot about the way in which it can feel when you're studying postmodernism that these kind of meanings clash and cancel each other out. So like you have so many things, you know, at the same time and, you know, you problematize everything. You're like every narrative that you want to raise, like you'll find problems with it and you might collapse into a form of meaninglessness. And there was a short period of time, I feel like, when people were very fascinated with this meaninglessness of postmodernism. And you had, like, postmodern works, like uh, I Heart Huckabees, where you, like, mm -hmm. watch the movie, and at the end, it's, it's like, whoa, nothing happened, but, like, isn't the world strange, or something like that. And that was interesting for a while, and then people were like, okay, but that doesn't really go anywhere. And nowadays, I feel like, to do postmodernism, like, quote-unquote, correctly, what a terrible phrase, <laughs> like, to get something out of it is a lot more challenging, and I think what's interesting about Shadowrun, it's one way of doing it. 
So postmodernism is really interested in this idea of pastiche. Like pastiche is, you know, you have all these narratives and none of them like hold up to scrutiny. Just go to the classic example. The classic example is the Iraq war. Okay, right? elaborate. So one of the other pillars of postmodernism is Baudrillard. And Baudrillard, one of his most famous points is the Iraq war never happened. That's the Gulf War, it, right? The Gulf War, right? But it applies to the second one as well. Mm-hmm. Where it happened was on our television screens, right? It happened as a media object fueled by the 24-hour media cycle, which was becoming a thing in the 90s, right? So a bunch of stuff obviously happened, like people died. A million Iraqis died in the second iteration. In the first one, quote-unquote, only tens of thousands, right? Like the road of death happened, like the U.S. bombed civilians trying to escape. But the actual object of the Iraqi war has little to do with those events. Like if you ask Americans what the road of death is, they'll probably not even know what it is, or they'll have this very romantic, very mediatized version of it. So the pastiche is, you say to people, the Iraq war, and they'll be like, wait, 9-11? Is 9-11 part of that? Because that's part of it now. And also, Geraldo Rivera, I remember him with the mustache, and... Abu Ghraib, and there was torture. Wait, no, but we're talking about the second war now. The first war, yeah, George Bush, yeah, oil, and wasn't it Dick Cheney again? Like, it's this mishmash of facts and hyper-reality, right? A reality that seems stronger and more real than what actually happened. But when you ask people to describe battles of the Iraqi war, maneuvers, commanders, budget, decisions, they can't, because all they have is this object which is ill-defined but stands in for reality right exactly so what happens is you get this prestige in your representation of reality and what do you do with it so i mean there are different ways to go about it but i feel like the interesting thing that Sharon does is it starts with being like super troperific so it uses every trope like straight and again pushes them all to 11 so I read the guide to like fifth edition and it starts with this story of a job, you know, uh, like a shadow job, like they have to, I don't know, rob something or I don't know, re- remember what. And it's so dense with tropes. Like you meet one guy and he's like a troll and he has a mechanical arm and like you meet the other one and he's like a spunky, the, the short guy. Like everything is, is like so, you know, so dense with tropes, so dense with like meaning. But again, it's like all the meanings shoot in different directions because it's a mishmash of like fantasy tropes and science fiction tropes from different times. And what's interesting about this work is that by clashing all of these things together, I think it kind of avoids the obvious problem of, you know, leaning in too much into one narrative. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes people like look at cyberpunk stuff and they're like, whoa, that's just cool because mechanical arms or something like that. And for Shadow One, like you have all of these things at the same time. And I feel like it creates a kind of like beautiful mess or perfect storm that really, again, creates this space for criticism and reinterpretation of what capitalism can be like, what resistance to capitalism can look like, what existing within or without the system can be. And I think it's a really interesting use of postmodernism. So like the postmodern move here is instead of embracing a single narrative, instead of it like meaning something, because I kept on reading in, in fifth edition and every time you're like, oh, so this book tries to mean X, the book is like, no, we don't mean X. Like if you want to think that like the corporations are all evil, I mean, kinda, but also, you know, they're the ones that they make the products that people buy. Like, so it's not letting you like go in any one direction. It's like, embrace the tension inherent to the system and live in this space for a while. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and it kind of like ties back to mosaicism, right? And it's like a postmodern perspective on it saying it's all a mosaic, right? That meme of the astronaut aiming the gun at the other astronaut. Wait, it's all a mosaic? (laughs) Yes, and it always was, right? It's kind of like saying it's not that this new future created a mosaic and something that is complicated and is different and is always changing and morphing. By the way, that's a really big metaphor that they use in Shadowrun, flux and flow, mm-hmm. right? Like the anarchist organization that operates mainly in Germany, in Berlin, is called the flux state. And it's like a terrorist anarchist organization trying to 
rile things up. And there's a lot of ideas around the flow of magic as well. Mm-hmm. So th- that metaphor is of liquid, and that's a metaphor that postmodernists really like, like liquid reality and liquid knowledge. This idea that things aren't static. They're always changing with perspective and economic conditions and social conditions and stuff like that. And I think Shadowrun takes that and says, well, and going back to your first point even, we're just going to accelerate this fact a bit so that you can see how your world is fluid, right? So sure, the setting is more fluid, but inherently it's the same. It's just your reality put into a Petri dish and accelerated a thousand times, but now go back and see your own mosaics and see your own like evil. And I think corporations are really interesting. So let's make this contemporary political. One of Elizabeth Warren's main points in her campaign was antitrust. Like I'm going to break up Facebook. I'm going to break up Google. I'm going to break up Apple and Amazon. So first of all, that idea is a perfect example of postmodernism because what the fuck does it mean to break up Amazon or break up Facebook? Like, I don't understand what that means. So like, AWS will become a company and the Amazon storefront will become a company and Kindle will become a company. First of all, why is that good? And like, how does that help? And second of all, that's not how any of this works, right? That's not how tech works. That's not how the infrastructure works. And even more importantly, my second point, it's like, is this really the evil that we now want to be dealing with, right? Sure, don't get me wrong. Corporations are bad. I'm a Marxist. I think that corporations shouldn't exist, or rather they should be owned by their workers. But if I had to choose what to run my campaign on, or what one of my main campaign points would be based on, it wouldn't be antitrust. It wouldn't be tech corporations are bad. It wouldn't even be corporations are bad. Because in this mosaic, in this ever-flowing thing called capitalism, sure, corporations are bad, but they're not the evil that we need to address. Or rather, just saying antitrust, break them up, is not the way to solve it. If you want to go after corporations, then let's do it and say all corporations should be owned by their workers and not by CEOs. That would be interesting. But I always thought that not just Elizabeth Warren, the entire like democratic field, and this goes back to the discussion we had before we started recording, they're great Shadowrun characters. Oh, definitely. Yeah. They would perfectly fit into Shadowrun because it's like, we're the good guys, right? Nancy Pelosi is doing like a cynical clap at Donald Trump. <laughs> But actually, we're just a side of the same coin. But also, don't you kind of prefer us? And you do. You do kind of prefer them, but only because it's a shitty, fluid, mosaic, postmodernist situation that you find yourself in. I mean, the Democratic Party is a very tragic concept, right? Because the concept is like, look, we're the ones who are capable enough to maintain capitalism. George Bush raises the debt. Don't worry. We'll get the debt down so that capitalism can stay stable. And it's like, you know, capitalism is kind of like the boat that you're floating on right now. So you're like, well, I don't want this boat to sink, but I think there are some changes we need to do to the boat. Yeah, which is exactly a shadow on point, right? Like, I hate the corporations, but the world is really chaotic right now. And like, there's whole swaths of the world that are like in shadow and people get killed there every day. And there's famine and plague. And the corporations, they are at the gate, right? I just, I wish it was something else, but I'm not gonna like go out to like a war with corporations because they're the only ones keeping me alive. And actually from here, I wanted to hinge on something you said earlier that, and then like pivot to my third point, you mentioned mechanical arms. Wait, I want to say something small about what you said. I feel like if you get something from, I think I said this already, but I think I can formulate this better. If you get something from this game of, in a way from postmodernism, it's the ability to hold this kind of like complex, like the good people are also the bad people thing in your mind and like yeah. kind of twist it around and look at it from different angles without going insane. Because our inherent need is like to classify things into is this good, is this bad? And there's a lot of stress from like the good things actually being bad. And this kind of like lets you play act this stress. Yeah, and in a sense, you know, that's what, quintessentially role-playing allows you to do beyond just being fun and it is really fun it allows you to put yourself in all sorts of scenarios and kind of play them out without any risk and think about what they do and what they say and how you conceptualize them not exactly giving you solutions 
but more helping you ask the questions better. Yeah. And one of the questions that Shadowrun asks, you see how I like, I'm pivoting yeah. more elegantly now. One of the questions that Shadowrun asks that we haven't really dealt with yet is the question of the body. First of all, it's become like a mandatory anarchy SF that has to be like a biological or like a biopower point. But like cyberpunk, like all cyberpunk, Shadowrun deals with cybernetics and the idea of enhancing human bodies with technologies. Now, cybernetics is a really interesting term because its origin and postmodernism rears its ugly head once again has actually been sort of forgotten. Like when we think about cybernetics today, we think about cyberpunk, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we think about this idea of enhancing human bodies with technology. But actually, the term came from research on disabled people and specifically mentally disabled people in the 50s. So when you Google this, it will tell you that it was a guy called Norbert Wiener who stapled the term. And that's true, he used it. But the study that actually, you know, brought it to the fore and elaborated on it was all about how we can look at disabled people, not as disabled and as weaker than us, but as new potentialities for human thought and existence. Now, the guy who wrote that study, he was an asshole, and he actually, I think, sexually assaulted his patients. He was a terrible person. Yeah, but the work itself is really interesting, and it has been used in interesting ways ever since. What if things like neurodivergence, like autism, for example, or other personality disorders, or neurodivergence is the term, right? Like different ways to use our brain. What if we saw them not as, a, as an illness or as an abnormality, but as just a different configuration of humans? And what if actually those things were potentials? So for example, you know, there's the cliche and the trope of, you know, autistic people are very good at math, right? Because they can think in um, abstract shapes and also dedicate themselves entirely to an occupation. Mm-hmm. But that's a very simple and Hollywood way to look at it. What if people who were neurodivergent could reimagine politics? Right? They could use their different perspectives and different prioritization and different ways of processing the world to come to different conclusions about how people should act. Right? Like taking this to a different spin. Becky Chambers, a science fiction author, wrote a book about space exploration where bodies are modified in all sorts of ways to explore space. What if we could use... Like disabled people, you put like someone in a wheelchair in space and suddenly their lack of ability to walk is no longer a disadvantage and their upper body strength is many times that of the average person because they've been um, moving themselves with their arms. So suddenly their disability becomes an advantage. Yeah, isn't this also a plot point in John Harrison's lights? Like isn't there someone who... Yeah. Like quote-unquote, disables herself in order to become one with a ship or something like that? Yeah, with the ship. Yeah, they have to, like, chop up her body, you know, so that she can fit into the machine interface with the ship. So bringing this all back to Shadowrun, Shadowrun has a more traditional perspective on cybernetics, right? It's more like faster, stronger, better. Like, what if I gave you metal legs and then you can run faster? But what it does, interestingly, is this idea of essence, right? And the more you give up of your human body, the more it changes not just your performance, but also your way of thinking about the world. In their case, it's very black and white. Like, you lose empathy, you lose the ability to think like a person, you even become, like, um, unhinged and violent and um, sociopathic in a way. But it raises a very interesting question. It's possible that cybernetics are just around the corner. In fact, by some definitions, we're already doing cybernetics. Yeah. Uh, mechanical arms and bionic eyes are now a thing and hearing implants for deaf people are now, you know, they're right in the brain, they're implants in the brain, stuff like that. Are those things disabilities now? So if I take a deaf person, for example, or a hearing disabled person, I think is what I should call it now, and I, first of all, I treat the disability but then I make it better, right? Like I use an implant and the implant works better than the human ear. Is that a disability still or an advantage? Yeah, or in general, they have the option to turn it off. Like a lot of 
discussions in the hearing impaired community are about like we live in a kind of different world where we have a language that isn't based on sound where there's a whole discussion about you know how hearing impaired people feel about having children that aren't hearing impaired and sometimes they feel like their children can't speak their language like there are things about the world that they don't understand because they are hearers yeah exactly and then into that i think shadowrun also does another thing and says okay you might say that it's still a disability in your reality but what if now i change the environment right and now suddenly we're in an environment that privileges that way of thought because people with low essence are less likely to experience trauma right they're more mechanical and methodical and they can deal with this dystopian world in which Shadowrun is placed better than non-enhanced people so yeah they're quote-unquote giving up their humanity but on the flip side they are getting something back right i think it opens a lot of interesting questions that are relevant to our own situation where reality is changing and about to change in really radical ways and the questions are what will be the new privilege right like which new disabilities and abilities will become advantages or disadvantages in our current or in our next future the yeah future. and i feel like i'll be deducted postmodernist points if i don't mention the cyborg manifesto so does donna haraway's yeah. cyborg manifesto a very hard to read article because it's hard to reconnect to how optimistic she could feel about technology but mm-hmm. her main point was i don't want to do the nature technology dichotomy anymore what i want is like give me all the cyborgness i've always been a cyborg i'm more of a cyborg women are more cyborg than men like interesting claim read the thing and it's hard to read it's very postmodern but i feel like what shadowrun like starts is a little bit of questioning the optimism of this and maybe that's one thing that i'd be careful about with Shadowrun, or maybe like this is just the way we feel, you know, Shadowrun was written in 89, and playing Shadowrun today, you're playing a vision of the future as it was seen, it's retro-futurism, you're playing a vision of the future as it was seen 30 years ago, and nowadays, cybernetics, I mean, as far as they help disabled people are awesome, but we don't expect to start seeing like ultra-powerful people with mechanical arms or stuff like that, because we know that you know, t- technological advance, a lot of it is garbage and a lot of things aren't happening because of capitalism, because the future has been cancelled. We've discussed this before. The great thing about this problematization of the body is, of course, its anti-humanist move, right? Like saying, well, what does it actually mean to be human? Which is a classic, like, cyberpunk idea, right? Like, let's replace every, let's uh, ship of Theseus, this humanity of yours. Let's replace it part by, by part and ask, like, what is actually human about you a good question to ask i think it's hard to ask this question in a i don't know if a role-playing game is the best way to ask this question because i don't know if it can like give you the experience of embodiment as well as maybe some other media can but you can try yeah so before we wrap things up i just want to pay my dues and go back to that research that i couldn't remember so the reason i couldn't remember is that i didn't mean cybernetics i meant cyborgs which is you know adjacent and the term cyborg, actually, one of the people who coined it, well, two people, Manfred Kleins and Nathan Klein. I know those names are similar, but they're not related. And they were those people that I referenced, psychiatrists. And they were looking at the usage of bodily and mental disabilities, specifically things like depression, as things we can learn from and use in a space race and to treat or to prepare people for being in space. So for example, someone who had depression and was treated for it might be more psychologically adaptive and resilient when they go to space to face a long period of isolation, Mm -hmm. right? Because now they have tools that they built consciously with a psychiatrist that people who never experienced depression never developed. And when they will deal with the trauma of being in space, they will be better suited towards it. And as I said, they were both assholes and they did terrible things to their patients. So take all of that with a grain of salt. But that's one of the places where this question of 
new environments plus human disabilities equals possible potentialities and opportunities for a different kind of human yeah. existence. And I'll say, like, a last point about Shadowrun is the way it treats exceptionalism. So mm-hmm. one point of criticism I may have of the game is that it definitely gives you the feeling that you are not one of the quote-unquote sheeple, right? Other people yeah. exist within this machine are being chomped up by its gears. You are above it. You are transcending above it by being in the shadows. And I feel like here it's a lot of responsibility of the people writing the story, which is both the storyteller and the players, not to give in to this feeling. So the reason that it's good to be exceptional in this system is that this is like what we wanted, like what we mentioned by you know exacerbating all the tensions. We want to get a perspective of you know, the problems of society and how they can be exacerbated and like the tensions of capitalism and what happens when they clash. So we have to be outside the system to kind of experience that fully. So that's why I think it's still good to position you as a shadow runner rather than as like a corporate stooge or something like that. However, there's a temptation here that must be resisted to transcend the system individually, to be like Neo, to be the one, to say, Everyone else is sheeple. I'm somehow above it. You know, I'll end with something about Plato's cave. Plato's cave is a metaphor where, you know, there are people in the cave. They only see the shadows of the fire. There's a fire behind them. They're with their backs to the fire. So all they see is shadows. And the idea is that, like, they have a very uh, limited view of reality. And then someone goes out. And one interesting thing about this metaphor that isn't mentioned a lot is how you bring someone out. Like, if you're the person who got out, how do you come in and drag those people out? And I feel like that's a duty that we have to remember. The reason that we can record a podcast and talk about capitalism and its woes is that we have so much free time because we're so privileged. It's incredible that we can, like, read all of this shit, think about it, live with this kind of stream of information, And all of this is like the result of so much privilege. To think that this makes you exceptional, better than, is horrendous. Like that should never be the direction. The direction should always be like, if you have some good ideas, let's talk about those good ideas with other people. Let's transcend these systems as a group, as a collective, as a people. And never like, I'm the one, because that's a neoliberal dream, right? The idea of like being the one who transcends the system, that's like, what Elon Musk thinks that he is, right? That's... Yeah. I think in that sense, a criticism of Shadowrun is also a criticism of cyberpunk full stop, right? Like if you look at The Matrix or Blade Runner or any of these other seminal cyberpunk creations, they're all about the narrative of the Messiah, right? The individual that is above, that is, you know, free and can destroy the system, but it's never about how they go back and uplift the rest of the people, right? They just keep them in their captivity. I think Matrix is the most egregious example of that. He's Neo, you're all sheep, sit down, shut the fuck up, because the agents will destroy you, right? And Neo is about destroying the system and freeing people, although he doesn't even do that, unfortunately, at the end of the unfortunate sequels. But it's never... Wait, I can hack the code, so why don't I just make everyone a Neo, right? Like, why don't I just give every single person in the simulation all my powers? So Shadowrun does make that sin as well, or suffers from that sin of an exceptional group of people who can game the system but never break the system, or go back, as you said, which is a really good metaphor for it, and uplift the people to fight with them. And that's why they're not revolutionary. That is the essence of the revolutionary thought, not just how you can be, like the vanguard doesn't just stay a vanguard, the vanguard drags the rest of the people into the revolutionary state. It creates the conditions by which they can free themselves, like that. Yeah, exactly. So, have you seen or or read or uh, played anything interesting lately? Boy, have I. Yeah, we haven't talked about that stuff in a while. I'm reading Creeping Jenny by Jeff Noon. Jeff Noon is this really important... Another writer's writer, he wrote Vert in the 90s, which influenced The Matrix, by the way, and other things. And now he's been doing the Nyquist trilogy, which is like a noir detective story. But every city it takes place in has a different shtick. So, for example, the first one is covered in a dome, 
and it there's lights at the bottom of the dome, so there's never night. Mm-hmm. And the second one, stories and worlds come to life. And now the last one is a village in the UK where every different day is dictated by a different saint, like the behavior of the people in the village. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, very creepy. I don't usually read horror, but this one is like really good. It's quite scary and like psychologically creepy. It's extremely well written. Sounds, sounds good. Yeah. What about you? So I've read a couple of things since last we talked, but what I want to talk about is I played Death Stranding finally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I watched The Umbrella Academy, which is kind of like an uneven show. It does some stuff bad. But one thing that those two have in common, which I found really interesting, is like that they talk about this kind of tragedy of how hard it is to make productive connections. Mm-hmm. So like the theme of both these pieces in two very different ways is it's so easy to resort to like a destructive reaction to things, a violent one, a use of force. But the only way to rebuild is to direct like an immense amount of energy to rebuilding, to mutual aid, to trying to make stuff better. And Death Stranding does this by kind of subverting the multiplayer idea. So most multiplayer games are about competing. Sometimes you're in a team, but you're competing against another team. But all of the multiplayer elements in Death Stranding are about cooperation mm-hmm. between yeah. people who cannot communicate. So you're just yeah. like helping people that you don't know and will never like say thank you to you directly. But you just like do something and you know that other people will benefit from it. And like the game is so constructed that it gives you like a really good feeling when you do that stuff. And the Umbrella Academy is just like, it's about a dysfunctional family and you know, everybody has legitimate grievances against each other. And when they interact, they also have superpowers, right? So whenever they use their superpowers like against each other or in a destructive way, you like totally get why they do it. But like, that's never the answer. What you need to do is like to sit down, work on your problems, try to cooperate. And it's super hard, but like, that's the only thing that can solve stuff. So it's a really interesting thread and it's really interesting how it like creates that feeling. Cool. So thank you for listening. And if you want like many more works in this vein, go to www.anarchysf.com for a list of well-curated works. And we're working on Anarchy SF 2.0. We're going to be making a bunch of additions and changes to our design and UI and also our backend, which will also hopefully make it easier to contribute to the website. By the way, you can contribute to it. It's completely open source. So and it's on GitHub. So if you have like any works that aren't there or things you want to amend, you can do that. And hopefully in the next few months, we can launch the new version of the site, which will be fancy and easy to use and wonderful. Yeah. So something to look forward to. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.